Hear ye, hear ye, come one and all. Join us for a free introductory journey through occult theory and practice. Learn dazzling mysteries, occult sciences, and powerful spells. Heal the sick, curse your enemies, and attract the favor of that sexy human next door. All this can be yours absolutely free. All we ask is that you tune in every other week. Learn what you can and put it into practice. Some side effects may include stress relief, a new outlook on life, and a newfound obsession with small shiny objects. Tune in today. All right, I want everyone to forgive me for a moment as I do not have cable and am one year behind in American Horror Story, so I just finished watching Apocalypse on Netflix. Netflix. No, wait, that's that's a different show. Has any show ever gone as far as to smear and misportray so many religions in like a single season? Voodoo, relegated solely to black magic. Witchcraft, Satanism, the whole episode with Anton LaVey, like, and the, the like satanic panic version of the Black Mass is like disgracefully inaccurate. How did they get LaVey's estate to agree to that? I don't think they did because like the Church of Satan later on like there are articles from them like mm. denouncing it and being like really upset i think like technically he was a public figure so they so. have some kind of rights there to yeah. to use his i don't know creatively use his image um you know i'm all for pointing out flaws in people's beliefs when it's real but like deliberately misportraying for shock value and fu- fueling stereotypes feels like as bad to me as racism it's like yeah. if there was a show where the entire city, um, there was an entire city of Muslims and they were all portrayed as terrorists or an entire town of Catholics who were all pedophiles. It's like on the same level. It's it's some bullshit. Yeah, this is some bullshit. some bullshit. So uh, open letter to Hollywood. Dictation begins. Stop it. Dictation ends. Yep. Welcome to Fool's Guide to the Occult. I am Kevin. And I'm the writing on the wall. I can uh, see the you would not believe. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I am today. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't believe how much horribly racist shit I came across while researching this episode. So many of the people who have spent their time trying to put together a religious taxonomy are like heavily Christian centric, like. Referring Huge to people as bias. heathens and heretics and shit. Yeah, or like leaving all other, like putting Christianity and Judaism and Islam on their taxonomy and then relegating every other religion to the category of paganism. And right. that's the taxonomy. Like it's Pantheism just like, here's or whatever. breakdown. Yeah. Ugh. Some faiths anyway. are actually pantheistic. Uh, some faiths are actually pagan, but those are words that have definitions. Like true, those words mean things, right? Right. I don't know. Pick up a dictionary, right? Or you know what? They have those online now. You don't even have to pick one up. Yeah, I still make my students go get a dictionary, but that's not unreasonable. Anyway, that's probably a good skill. Hey, I'm sitting here with some homemade fried chicken and uh, some nice bread. And a packed bowl, and we're ready to talk about the taxonomy of religious beliefs that kind of lead down to modern occultism today. Yes. Now, now that we've gone about the process of setting ourselves up to have to be very careful with how we do our taxonomy, we are going to skip journaling. We're going to skip our interlude this week. 
uh, as we have a great deal of material for you. And we're coming at you with another real chunky dunker of an episode. Yep, you're gonna have you're gonna have to to ch- chop this one up, listen to it in parts. Unless you um, have, have a, a particularly egregious commute. Yeah, I have a forty-five uh, minute commute every day, so okay. I get some so you could like there and back it. Listening time, yeah. But if you don't have that, or you don't have a lot of train time, or whatever it is, you know, take Just a stay in your car. Just stay in your car and be late. Yep. Yeah, that's it. You know, this work can fucking wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No way. Nobody can afford to do that. Nobody can afford to do that. Gentle listeners, please do not uh, be late to work because of us. That would be bad. Uh, what you should do because of us, though, is hit up our Instagram uh, or our Facebook or even our Twitter or, or whatever uh, else we do on the Internet. You know, support us on Patreon because sure, this hit is us on a Patreon. tough job. Yeah, this is, um, this is my, my millennial unpaid side hustle. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally totally absolutely right, let's, let's let's dive in here we've let's got dive in let's talk about branches, branches of, philosophy. of philosophy yeah that so was good. yeah it was yeah certainly there are scores of concepts that are considered branches of philosophy uh such as theology political philosophy philosophy of the mind law education history so on and so forth but when we're talking about strict taxonomy of philosophy there are about five uh branches five like core branches we'll we'll address them as schools of philosophy yeah Uh, so the first school of philosophy is epistemology epistemology i think it's epistemology epistemology how i've heard it pronounced yeah epistemology the study of knowledge how do we know things and what is the nature and origin of knowledge itself logic which is the study of argument or uh correct reasoning in other words thinking and debating in a way that's essentially bulletproof Uh, i took a logic class during my bachelor's program it counted as a math credit and it was super super interesting like a math credit yeah it did i don't know how okay i'm not gonna argue um it was a very interesting class and I, I think everyone should like at least check out logic. I think it's a really cool system of thought and just a different way of thinking. It's kind of fun. It is. Uh, I've explored a little bit of the rationality branch of logic, but sorry, uh, taxonomy schools. Uh, the next major school of philosophy is ethics. So the study of right and wrong, good and bad, morality, immorality, amorality, should versus could and so forth. Indeed. Next, we have aesthetics. And this is all about creation, interpretation, appreciation, reflection, and analysis of what is considered to be beautiful uh, from everything, from the human form to landscape to architecture to room decorations and so on. I took a class called uh, Art in the Human Body during my undergrad, which was really interesting cross-cultural, cross-time analysis of what was considered beautiful when it came to the human form. That sounds very, cool. very Yeah, it was cool. Alright, last but not least, uh, and the one that we concern ourselves with the most in this particular show is metaphysics. That is the study of what is some ca- uh, sometimes called first philosophy. So, the study of concepts like being, 
mind, identity, ontology, uh, free will versus determinism, the nature of reality and perception, philosophies of existentialism and nihilism both kind of fall under metaphysics. Uh, there is some interplay between metaphysics and theology. The study of the nature of the concept of being is actually a whole branch of metaphysics called ontology, which you mentioned before, which spends much of its time studying things that are, in other words, nouns, right? Is-is. Uh, is-is, yeah. Metaphysics is often considered the study of what is real, um, and through that, we get wonderful discussions on the nature of consciousness, identity, existence, change, possibility, space, time, and so forth. Other branches of metaphysics include uh, cosmology and uh, a philosophical theology. Okay, so we've got our primary schools of philosophy. Let's talk about a taxonomy of magic and magical tradition. Yeah, let's do that. Before we get started, I want to mention that we can not possibly even come close to mentioning every single branch in the tree in this episode. Or that could probably, be its own podcast, not like a series. Be, that could be its own podcast. Own dedicated podcast. You'd have to talk about every spiritual belief, every religion, every cult that ever was. And that's... We're I, not equipped for that. I don't think it could ever really be done. I don't think it's possible. There are just so many. And there are ones like we don't even know of and, and ones we've just had to leave out because we don't have the time or space in an episode to, to cover them. But if you feel like we missed a crucial one, um, please feel free to let us know on our communi community page on Facebook called Fellow Travelers or poke us on Instagram at Fool's Guide or twit at us or, or whatever us. Whatever, I'll, I'll get a P.O. box soon so you can send us mail, all right? Yeah. Tell you what we'll do is uh, we will compile those goofs, those misses, and we'll do maybe a side quest, depending on how many of them there are, Yeah. of traditions of magic that we didn't talk about. Absolutely. And if you're like from one of these traditions or religions or have cultural knowledge of something that we covered and we fucked it up we did it wrong or we just didn't do it justice please let us know because you know we're all trying to grow together and uh you know we're just two people doing the best we can you know what we're I mean? just two dudes with a podcast all right let's get started let's shamanism is where we're kicking it off uh we do not want to burst anyone's bubble here but absolutely none of this is based on carlos castaneda books yeah there's a large body of evidence including an omission from his wife and a number of colleagues that the teachings of don juan and all of castaneda's related works were entirely made up now that doesn't mean you can't find truth in it. As we've said before, everything is made up. Everyone can find their truth where they look for it. But there's about as much truth in Castaneda's books as there is in a Stephen King novel. And I love Stephen King, so sure. take that however you want. Shamanism. This is the beginning of a lot of spiritual beliefs. There have been lots of arguments that humans first conceived of religion and spirituality the first time we accidentally ingested psychedelic plants, um, most likely psilocybin mushrooms. There are a lot of books out there about that philosophy. Um, others have argued that religion formed as a result of what James Joyce called uh, his theory of the bicameral mind. 
However, this is a concept that many psychologists, many other people, and I myself included, reject. It was pretty early in the study of psychology. It's true. It's true. But there are people out there that still uh, still believe in this and still think that that could have been the case. Um, yeah. It's pretty ludicrous idea with numerous valid counter arguments. However, no matter how it all came to be, our earliest ancestors' uh, beliefs were largely based around a number of simple concepts. Uh, we need these things. We want these things. How do we make them happen? Why did this thing happen? That sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. What is that streak of light that just flew across the sky and made a huge cracking sound? Most human traditions I know of use some method. I'm sorry, most shamanistic traditions I know of use some method of entering gnosis um, in order to do their work either by pain, physical exhaustion, dehydration, fasting, fast rhythmic, drumming, dancing, chanting, as well as the use of psychedelic or entheogenic substances. They probably don't call it gnosis, but it has uh, similar characteristics adequate that we use that word here. Yeah, I mean, you can call it gnosis, you can call it trance, you can call it single-pointed consciousness, you can call it by whatever culture we're talking about whatever culture under question whatever their traditional word for it is right um i don't know i pretty much only speak english and a little bit of japanese so um yeah that's what i got for you shamanism is deeply influenced by both tradition and whatever works for whoever is doing it at any given point in space time as one of my anthropology professors used to say tradition is what worked for a group of people at one point in time and they decided to pass it down to the next generation. Well, they didn't get eaten. They didn't get eaten, yeah. No. <laughs> the only reason to follow tradition is if it continues to work. Otherwise, what good is it? If your tradition prevents you from getting eaten, okay. Keep doing it. <laughs> uh, and, and though we can begin to understand uh, changes in beliefs and practices through time by looking at this, uh, as a group migrates to new regions, accumulates new information, or a shaman's apprentice takes over and runs things a little bit differently um, based on whatever the spirits are telling them, the practices of that group evolve over time. The trade of shaman is usually passed down from one individual to their apprentice, and different cultures have different traditions and initiation rites regarding walking of this path. Um, one of them that I've heard of before is if you're struck by lightning, that's a sign to become a shaman or experiencing what we now call epilepsy or schizophrenia um, are another two examples of groups of people who are considered by some cultures to be in touch with uh, spirits or the other world. Sure. Uh, shamanism will sometimes involve practices such as ancestor worship, journeying to a specific shrine, for instance, uh, such as in Korean shamanism or Japanese Shinto, uh, it involves the use of magic or ritual. Uh, sometimes the use of psychoactives, not all of which are hallucinatory. Though many are. Granted. There's usually a belief in some kind of afterlife and or magical otherworld or cycle. Uh, some concept of soul uh, or spirit. And it is also where we get... 
the idea of the the fetish or the poppet in magic from right right um we talked about that in an earlier episode yeah fetish is any physical object that represents something else in the real world like a clay buffalo or a doll representing a person or something like that and it's also uh from shamanism that we get the law of similarity and contagion that we discussed earlier in our series uh in chinese the word wu is used meaning shaman or sorcerer uh one artifact of ancient chinese shamanism we can study today is chinese oracle bones indeed uh in japan we have miko which is a form of a shrine priestess or shaman in japanese shinto uh also in shinto you get kanushi uh the shrine masters in shinto tradition uh, they're able to transmit the will of kami, so spirits or gods, uh, act as their medium, or even be temporarily possessed by them, uh, such as how the Loa uh, sometimes ride people in, in Vodun. Yeah, definitely. Um, mu means shaman in Korea, or in, in Korean. There are a few different types of Korean shaman. Uh, again, a topic we can and may do a whole series on later, or a whole episode on later, but I'd feel more comfortable doing that if we find maybe a Korean person who knows something about the traditional Korean shamanism. So if that's you, please reach out to us. We'd love to interview you. Sure. Same with um, uh, something like a, like a medicine man or a medicine tradition. Uh, can be used as a synonym for shamanism, but again, not one we can cover without expert input. Yeah, typically uh, native North American, right? Is where that First Nations um, type stuff. Sorcerer is sometimes used in place of shaman, though less frequently. Witch doctor could also be used, but it could also be seen as pejorative or disrespectful, depending on how it's used. Definitely. Uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this one. I'm sure I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Uh, it's Tixivneeb. That's my best shot, and that translates to person with a healing spirit and is the name for a shaman amongst the Hmong people. I first came across this version of shamanism while taking medical anthropology in my undergrad and was reading this book uh, by Anne uh, Fadiman called The Spirit Catches You and Fo You Fall Down, which shows the difference between their traditional cultural healing practices and Western medicine. So and we, could go, we could go on and on. Uh, but long story short, shamanism exists in every cultural region from the Amazon River Basin to Siberia, Mongolia, Pacific Island nations, uh, North America, South America. And as diverse as their cultures and beliefs are, many of them share some relatively similar principles. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a bit about established animistic tradition as well. Yeah, sure. Um, these are established religious traditions that stem directly from shamanism and became more formalized. I think a solid example of this would be um, the animistic traditions of the Ainu people, who were the, um, the native people of Japan. Um, and over time, this sort of turned into Japan's variety of Shinto traditions. Many of the European traditions uh, provide some basis for what is modern Wicca, um, a la Gerald Gardner. Um, plus a little bit of ceremonial magic. And there's an excellent um, episode of this podcast, Stuff You Should Know, which is my all-time favorite podcast, even like above and beyond last podcast on the left. They did an Oof. episode all about druids, which was incredibly well-researched and really worth looking into. Uh, other examples include the religions practiced by Aztec and Mayan peoples, as well as 
uh, pre-Christian Greco-Roman religion, though we are going to touch on these a little later as well, really all of the religions in our next section might kind of overlap with this category. Yeah, this branch would also probably include uh, Haitian Vodou um, and New Orleans Voodoo, which branched from uh, more sham- shamanistic Vodun practices brought to the Americas as a product of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but we should note that Voodoo is what is considered a synchronistic religion. That is a religion that combines elements of two or more traditions. Uh, in this case, Vodou and Catholicism. Um, Santeria is also an example of a synchronistic religion or religious synergy, as it is sometimes referred. Similar effects also took place throughout Asia, where traditions like Buddhism or Confucianism combined with um various forms of shamanism, Taoism, and Shintoism. But often these traditions remained um, independent influences, not entirely forming a true synergy. Uh, One example, though, of a case of Buddhism uh, creating synergy with another religion is Tibetan Buddhism, which is a combination of the historical spiritual practices of Tibet and Buddhism at the time it arrived. Okay, so let's talk about early religions which employed what we would consider to be a magic ritual. All right. If we're going to be honest, it's most of them. Let's start out with ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamian traditions. Okay. Ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, and Mesopotamian traditions. uh, Frequently polytheistic. So they believed in multiple deities. Yep. Steeped in ritual and mythology, many of which uh, transferred to a variety of later religions either through cultural borrowing, religious evolution, or just a desire to uh, convert other people's practitioners. Uh, Lots of focus on cyclical existence, following the seasons, etc., the death and rebirth of Osiris in uh, the Egyptian religion is a great example of this. This is an example of uh, a tradition that finds its way into many other religions, including Christianity. And is an example of both a mythological explanation for the seasons and an example of sun worship. Uh, we can refer to chapter 5 of The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall for this. In the section, The Myth of the Dying God, Hall traces the history of this tradition directly from ancient Babylonian uh, deity, uh, probably going to pronounce this wrong, Tammuz, who dies at the end of the summer and is resurrected again in the spring. He then discusses the story of Adonis, whose name um, he's keen to point out literally translates to Lord um, and was later borrowed by the Abrahamic face, though this worship predates them. Adonis was born on December 24th. Uh, He was killed later by a boar, gourd, or speared in the side. Adonis was an androgynous deity originally and represented the sun, and then he's resurrected again in March. Uh, The same god existed in Phrygia uh, by the name Attis. And the same thing happened with Osiris, Bacchus, Balder, even uh, Hiram Abiff, the mythical builder of Solomon's temple in the Masonic mythos, although I'm not sure he resurrected. I I guess I don't know enough about the Masonic tradition to say that. Uh, Don't forget Jesus Christo. Sweet zombie Jesus. All examples of seasonal mythos and honestly, sun worship. Yeah, there's a lot to dig into with the myth of the dying god and its relation to Odin and the true meaning of the hanged man in the tarot. 
and how all of this relates to the ancient mystery religions and psychedelic drug use and among other things. Um, but hey, that's a flavor for another day. So what else is really interesting about these religions in particular? Well, I don't want to go into any one branch too deep because this is like looking at branches on a tree with our naked eye, not a microscope. But I will go ahead and argue this. I'm not sure anyone I've ever read has argued this before, but I'm going to say it, and um, it seems kind of plausible. I think these religions will form the basis of what becomes Western ceremonial magic. Okay. Yeah, and magic was central to the religious life of uh, people in ancient Egypt. They also believed in nine spiritual bodies of all living things. Uh, this later uh, lends later to the concept of the astral double. The Egyptians, as well as many Mesopotamian religions, believed in a whole host of invisible beings living all around us that could do good things or malevolent things. An interesting side note, there's a Mesopotamian god called Bess, who looks quite different from all the rest of the gods. And he was, among many other things, the protector of the home. So you could put like a statue of him in the entryway, like, you know, those dogs from Chinese culture or gargoyles. Um, And he would protect from evil spirits or stop bad people from coming in. Bess, the real OG. Let's talk a bit more about Eastern magical tradition. Uh, We've talked a bit about Korean shamanism already. Uh, There's also a form of magic as part of the Taoist traditions, though it is very difficult to find much out there about it other than it is believed to have evolved from early Chinese uh, shamanism. Surprise! We've also talked about the Eastern Elemental System briefly uh, before in this show, and maybe it would be a good time to discuss it a bit more. Um, Yeah, why not? The Wuxi, but let's not go too deep into it. I think we should probably do an episode on this just kind of all together um, down the line and, sure. you know, a future time. Yeah, Totally. Uh, but so very briefly, the five elements of the Eastern system are fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. Uh, and the system is sometimes called the five elements, but it has many other names, including the five agents, the five movements, processes, steps, phases, various other collective nouns. Yeah. This system seems a little bit more robust than the European five classical element system. It includes uh, four. I'm sorry. Well, it's five if you include spirit. So, like, if you're looking at the pinnacle and you have the top. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, the the fifth point is, like, spirit or void or uh, aether. Or pizza. But it includes the the cyclical process of generation and destruction. It's kind of, like, worked into the the eastern elemental system. And it's a a central component of a vast number of uh, eastern energy working and martial arts, such as tai chi, which uh, you know seeks to balance like yin ki or and yang ki, which is uh, like the yin and yang, uh, masculine and feminine ki energy, or also pronounced chi energy sometimes, um, for you know health and well-being and self-defense. We could also talk about meridian lines and how like Asian energy therapy works. Uh, there's acupuncture, which many of you you know is the the use of needles historically much bigger than the super little bitty ones they use nowadays uh, to manipulate or alter the flow of spiritual energy through spiritual veins or tubes that are believed to run along the body and are called meridians. 
uh, like those lines that stretch north to south on on a map or a globe. Yeah, uh, there's also qigong, a practice I actually spent a semester in college learning about and practicing. Of course, that was an undergrad course in qigong. Of course, yeah, it, it counted as a, a gym credit. Did it? It did. <laughs> Phys ed credit for qigong. Yeah, it's a combination of movement, breathing, and meditation used for moving, moving and balancing spiritual energy. Um, in the body and it literally translates to uh, life energy cultivation okay uh shiatsu is a japanese form of body and energy work uh, which involves both physical massage and spiritual healing through the use of meridian and key power manipulation um there's also reiki which is another form of japanese energy work but unlike shiatsu it doesn't exactly require the receiver of the healing energy to be present most Reiki work is done that way, but you can do long-distance Reiki, apparently. Uh, it does, however, require initiation in a variety of stages or levels, and more often than not, you have to pay for this, which makes it kind of culty. Kind of culty. Supposedly, you're capable of channeling a form of universal key energy uh, to heal people physically and encourage mental and emotional healing as well. Uh, there's also a wide usage of herbalism in many Asian cultures to balance certain energies rather than to cure specific illnesses. Though actual herbal medicine does have a long-standing tradition uh, in much of Asian culture as well. Yes. Well, some of the Chinese traditions also bring us uh, the I Ching or the Book of Changes, which is an oracle system that we'll likely do a whole episode on in the future. Uh, it's a big topic. It, is. it basically involves the random generation of a hexagram using a set of numbers which are randomly selected. Um, the hexagram is then looked up in the I Ching, which provides an interpretation for it. And this is then used as a form of divination, kind of. Uh, what about uh, feng shui? What about feng shui? Feng shui. Uh, I've also heard it pronounced feng shui. Not... Not by anyone that speaks an Eastern language natively. Yeah, I I don't speak any form of Chinese. I don't like, either, but, but I've never heard anyone call it feng shui. Yeah, I don't know. If you are a Chinese speaker and can pronounce this for us properly, please let us know. Please. Uh, it literally translates to wind water, uh, at least so I've read. It is uh, really similar to the concepts behind the city beautiful movement in a non-spiritual sense and the idea is that people are sort of psychologically impacted by the aesthetics of their environment but there's also like a deep spiritual component to it as well uh in feng shui astronomy and geological magnetism can be used to determine relationships between the land people the universe uh, this is done on every level uh, from how and in what direction to construct an entire building uh, to the layout or organization of a room. Uh, it's done to optimize the flow of key energy in and through a given space. There are also taboos and superstitions within feng shui, feng shui which will be fun to talk about uh, when we do an actual episode on it. And this is just uh, some of the most well-known stuff in the Western world that we've mentioned. You can dig pretty deep into almost any culture worldwide and find some really interesting uh, magical practices, energy workings, spiritual practices. Just not all of it has been translated to English and found its way to the Western world yet. 
you might have to go seek a lot of it out. Um, that sort of kind of the remaining beauty of cultural anthropology in the modern day is just participant observation and like some of the really awesome cultural beliefs and practices that, you know, most of us here in the West just don't know about. We don't. I don't. Then I suppose onward we go. Uh, let's move on to other Eastern faiths. Uh, Hinduism. Hinduism. Great. Uh, if you are a practicer of one of the myriad Hindu varieties or flavors, traditions, flavors, please come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Basically, this is a secret uh, episode that we're using to solicit interviews. That's what this secretly is. Yeah. We're well, going to be a little out. bit wrong on a lot of things. And if anyone is more right than we are, you should tell us. Absolutely. Come on the show. We'd love to have you. We would. All right. As fascinating as it is, Hinduism is a religion I don't really know enough about. And there's so much to learn. From my understanding, it contains a wide variety of traditions and sects or cults even from all over the Indian region, some of which can vary wildly from one another. Um, but there's a few things I do know about it that I think make it really interesting. Firstly, there's the concept of Atman or soul or self, which is later rejected by Buddhism in the concept of Anatman or no self or no soul. In Hinduism, the goal is to fulfill your dharma, which is your duty or reason for being alive, so that you can reincarnate, hopefully, in a higher position. This, by the way, uh, I believe is the basis for the caste system. Yes, and uh, the, the horrible, horrible caste system that, that has done horrible things to people. Um, and also the, the, the outcast caste, if you're familiar with the untouchables in India, like horribly mistreated group of people, just basically slaves. It's it's sad. Ultimately, uh, the goal is to achieve a state called moksha and thus become one with Brahma, which is all that is. That is, I am that I am. Um, if we're going Abrahamic with it, I'm not going to try and pronounce the Hebrew version. That's how okay. that's said. So karma is not this idea that is whatever you do comes back to you. And that, that hippie dippy uh, thing you hear people say like, Oh, that's bad karma. That's don't get bad karma from breaking a mirror. Like that's not how this works. No, 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 no. Um, that so karma does not affect you in the life that you're in. Karma is an action one takes in relation to your Dharma. So karma doesn't affect you in this life. Rather it affects your Dharma in your next life. And whether or not you reincarnate on a, a higher or lower level, so to speak. So that's if we go back to the untouchables, basically the the thing is like they justify this by saying the untouchables are in the position they are in in life because of what they did in the past life. Um, but all the jobs that are given to um, the untouchables, what the untouchables are supposed to do in society um, are all things that accrue negative karma. So it's sort of like a spiritual self cycle thing that keeps them kind of spiritually trapped in that position. Um, but I'm not going to talk your ear off about the untouchables anyway. Yeah, okay. Onward. Uh, from Hinduism, we also get a series of practices of meditation as well as mantras, uh, mandas, mudras. Uh, from India, we, we get a lot of the modern incense we use. Uh, Nag, 
for instance, uh, some darn good food too. Um, Hell yeah! Give me a mango lassi and some like, uh, oh, what's that stuff? Uh, chicken sog, mm. sog, Any or good. oh, uh, palak paneer. But mm. as opposed to uh, a deep dive on Indian food, let's focus. Uh, Sorry, I'm in a food mood. I'm also in a food mood. From Hindu systems, we also get uh, the idea of chakra, uh, the idea of kundalini energy. Uh, all of that comes out of Hinduism as well. And yoga. The Yoga Sutra is one of the many Vedas or holy books of India written in Sanskrit. Um, from the Yoga Veda, we can learn a whole bunch of things. But one of those is that the purpose of yoga was to prepare the body for meditation or to um, like act as a form of meditation itself. If you ever get really high and have done yoga, you can easily see the truth in this. So it's it's actually a, a ritual practice that Westerners have kind of turned into a gym fitness program. And I guess it works for that. That's just not really what it was for. Okay. I mean, we'll turn anything into a fitness program. Let's be real. All right. Next, we have Tantra. Tell me about Tantra. I don't really know a lot about Tantra. I'll be honest with that. I have a book on it. I haven't really cracked it open yet. I do know that it's not explicitly sexual as we've sort of been led to believe in Western culture. Um, there is a degree of magical practice involved in it, uh, including elements of yoga and, of course, uh, Shaktiism, um, which is a sort of sub-tradition. But, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of that's my limit of knowledge about Tantra. I know absolutely nothing about Tantra. I'm no help. We should probably keep moving. All right. Onward we go. Uh, let's talk about mystery religions. Um, there are a lot, including the Egyptian mystery religion, Greek, Persian, many, many others. Um, but let's just kind of talk about the Greek one for now. Okay. So initiation into the Greek mystery tradition at Eleusis was accepted for every adult of Greek nationality who had not stained their hands with the blood of another. Uh, the ritual was performed every year for close to 2,000 years uh, until it was wiped out due to enhance, intense hatred and rivalry uh, brought by another religion. Uh, Drumroll, please. You guessed it. Proto-Christianity. Yeah. 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 Um, and I've actually heard that it wasn't just um, adult men and women, but also sometimes children were initiated, which is going to be a little shocking when we uh we tell you what this is all about <clears throat> okay so let's talk about the initiation so the ritual itself involved the drinking of a form of uh alcoholic fermented alcoholic beverage called uh kaikian uh, i'm probably again not pronouncing that right but it's essentially made with rye purposely infected with ergot fungus um this is the same fungus um responsible for St. Anthony's fire and presumably many other uh, hysterias throughout history. Uh, some people have argued like even the Salem witch trials may have been fueled by uh, ergot poisoning. Contamination, yeah. Contamination, yeah. It's the same fungus that Albert Hoffman used to synthesize LSD. So it has some like really strong hallucinogenic components to it as well as like straight up poison and other chemicals. So uh, yeah, it's not one you go out there and you should not be just like taking ergot. Like it will fuck you up and not in a fun way. Not um, in a fun way. No. The most interesting part of this is that the Greeks had somehow figured out how to ferment the liquid. Um, so 
that the negative delusional paranoia inducing components of ergot were somehow eliminated while the psychedelic or entheogenic components remained. And I've, I've said psychedelic and entheogenic a couple times. So for people not in the know, psychedelic is like hallucinatory, right? But entheogenic is a term used for the same substances uh, when they're used in a spiritual, like sort of as a sacrament. So if you hear me say entheogenic, I'm saying like, if you're taking LSD specifically to have a religious experience, not to like party. Anyway, so this beverage would produce an experience similar to LSD and being a little drunk. Uh, the ceremony itself centered around uh, Demeter, who is in many ways similar to Isis, the Egyptian goddess, not the terrorist organization, and her daughter Persephone, and the cycle of death and rebirth, and the beginning and ending of all things. So this was a collective experience. So several people would undergo this initiation at a time uh, and be bonded together by the experience. So fasting all day before the ritual was expected. Uh, the same is also true of uh, many of the Mexican and Central American psilocybin mushroom cults or other yeah. traditions and faiths. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I also used to do when I was taking psychedelics about once a week for a year. Um, on the day that I would do it, usually a Thursday, I would fast all day and then dose at night. Wait. Wait a minute. Why Thursday? I don't know, but that was the day. And I, is... I only remember this because I would go to uh, abnormal psych in the morning, like oh. still like on, you know, the like halo still effect. Still kind right of floaty. You, like, yeah. Everything was really bright. <laughs> anyway, come to think of it, I'd read The Road to Eleusis and a few other books um, on the topic before I started kind of down that path. So it's probably just unconsciously recreating what I'd read. Okay. Although there's nothing in there about Thursdays. So again, don't know where that There were apparently lesser and greater mysteries and they were only performed at certain times of the year. So the lesser in the spring and the greater in the fall. Uh, Hall believes that most people were probably unaware of the true meaning behind the mysteries believing they were just a metaphor for the change in the seasons, ergo mysteries. Uh, Hall elaborates that Persephone symbolizes the human soul, whose true home is in the higher realm, but is trapped in Hades or earthbound. Uh, he writes, the human is a tomb, a false and impermanent thing, the source of all sorry and suffering. So real sorry. jolly guy, Manly P. Hall. Yeah, sorrow and suffering. Kind of Buddhist in a way, right? It's like uh, it was the first noble truth. Life is dukkha. Life is suffering. Right? Okay. Anyway, part of the secret, according to Hall, is that people are no wiser after death. Those who do not seek to educate themselves, to improve themselves, sleep forever. Um, the greater mysteries represents a form of spiritual regeneration where people learn to understand the true nature of divinity and how to experience it. And we're changed forever. And this really makes sense because I feel like most like drug stories are a cautionary tale. Like people ruin their lives doing all these substances or whatever. And personally, like I took psychedelics and became way more interested in educating myself and learning more about the world around me and learning everything I could about everything I could because it just okay. became 
just fascinating. Well, the world around um, you was intrinsically more interesting than it was before. But it lasted long after the 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 drug wore off. Like it well, there wasn't are some like studies a- that show that there are some enduring effects from psychoactives and psychedelics. Excuse me, they may actually be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of studies that say they increase brain plasticity, which is the ability of the neurons in your brain to make uh, connections with other neurons. That sounds also, important. Yeah, there's also research on the use of um, microdoses of psilocybin, which is in sure. hallucinogenic mushrooms for treating depression and a number of other things. Okay. Autism, too, I believe. Uh, there are also other mystery traditions, Uh even Greek mystery traditions. So there are Orphic mysteries, Dionysiac and Bacchic rites uh, to get away from the Greeks, Odinic and Persian mysteries, Egyptian mysteries. We we have a pretty long episode still cooking here, so we can't go over all of the mystery faiths now. That too would probably be its own podcast. Yeah, they might be side quests or other episodes down the line. I definitely have resources on a few of them, especially the Egyptian ones. Yeah, um, Hall mentions a lot of them. But let's move forward to monotheism. Monotheism, before, which is the belief in one God, right? I mean, mono purportedly theism belief. belief in a deity that smooches around a bunch and is super sleepy. Yeah. Um, So before we talk about the obvious ones, I'd like to talk about Zoroastrianism and Mithraism. Weren't those duotheistic? Um, So that is... sort of. Sort of, and that's debatable. Um, It depends on who you ask. And um, I mean, you could say the same thing about um, Catholicism. You could call Catholicism a polytheistic religion because of uh, the worship of the saints and, and Mary and stuff like that. But anyway... Okay, so we'll we'll look more at the like the old Persian, Roman, Babylonian type stuff. Okay. So Zoroastrianism or Mazdayan, uh, Yasana, Mazdayasana is regarded as the world's oldest continuously practiced religion. Now, this is obviously because Western anthropology doesn't consider a lot of shamanistic practices, especially those of cultures that did not maintain written historical records or whose historical records were burned or destroyed. Um, when European explorers uh, came over and their you know monks or whoever was there to convert people decided to right. destroy their stuff like the case of the uh, was it the Incan or the Mayan codexes that were burned I think that was Mayan don't quote me that could have been yeah I think, I think it was Mayan yeah you're right um, so perhaps Amazonian or African shamanism has been practiced far longer. However, Zoroastrianism contains, uh, Zora- sorry, Zoroastrianism certainly predates Judaism and Christianity. Definitely. So Zoroastrians believe in one uncreated universal deity uh, called Ahura Mazda, which means wise lord. Uh, there is a belief that the entire universe is Ahura Mazda, which makes it similar to the concept of Brahmanism from Hinduism. Uh, there's also Ariman or Angra Mainyu, which is like the Christian devil, like the antithesis of Ahura Mazda. Uh, it represents chaos, destructive force, the breaking of spiritual mentality. Zoroastrians used fire and water for ritual purification. The fire is usually what is portray- uh, prayed to, uh, as they believe spiritual insight can be con- uh, attained from it. Um, I believe... I don't have this in the notes, but if I remember from teaching this to kids, um, 
that there's often a fire, a light in the Zoroastrian temples that's never allowed to go out. That's like the holy flame. That's been bartered by later faiths as well. That's a Jewish tradition too. Yeah, and I believe there's there's a candle in um, uh, the Catholic Church that is never allowed to go out either. Um, Traditionally, the dead are disposed of in the most environmentally friendly way possible, and I'd really love to have this happen to me, but I don't think we allow it in the United States. In ancient times, they did this thing called excarnation. In other words, they would leave the body for the world, uh, like out in the wild, to decompose. And this was done on especially erected open roof temples called Towers of Silence, where the body would just be left for scavenging birds and other decomposers to break down the corpse. I think this is kind of better than pumping people full of chemicals and sticking them in the ground. Um, When I took medical anthropology in my undergrad, I was actually uh, required to write up my own funeral and what I wanted it to look like. That sounds morbidly fun. It was delightful, and I I think if I can find it, I might still have it in my digital files somewhere. Um, we'll do a side quest, maybe on on death and dying, and sure. I'll read it to you, and we'll talk about memento mori and uh, comparative afterlifes and funeral traditions. That could be a fun one. I mean, I have always wanted a funeral. Like my first choice is to be put into a tuxedo and fired into a sun, just fired there into the sun. That would be great. And if oh. I can't have that, then I want to be buried and then have mariachis and martinis and margaritas at my funeral while people tell raunchy stories about crazy shit I pulled. Yeah, count me in. That sounds super dope. I would be here for that. I mean, like, yeah. I won't care, but the people that I tend to associate with are the people that would appreciate mariachis. So, like, why not? Yeah. Well, yeah. If um, I'll, I'll go to that funeral. Okay. Yeah, totally. Okay. I mean, I'll go to your funeral anyway, but I, I, I appreciate that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see the writing on the wall. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, to zero in a little bit more, uh, one of the central elements of Zoroastrianism is moral choice. Uh, they believe in absolute free will and that people are responsible for their own actions in every situation they are in. Uh, And with that, I think we should actually save uh, Mithraism until after we talk about Christianity. Yeah, we'll we'll dig a little bit more into Abrahamic traditions. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Next, we are talking about the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, These are all the religions that claim lineage from the major Old Testament that was did you close. almost say Old Testicle? <laughs> I absolutely did, because <laughs> the script says Old Testament Biblical, and those got squished in my head a bit. The Old <laughs> old Testicle figure, Abraham. <laughs> all, right, all right, all right. Oh, man. So basically, Jews, Christians, Muslims, um, I guess people that also accept those People that are of those faiths or offshoots of those faiths. Yeah, I guess like Um, kind of Baha'i, but Baha'i is more like universalism in a sense. I don't really know uh, where the Druze come into things. D-R-U-S-E. I think that's related, but I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. Anywho, can you briefly sum up the story of Abraham for us? Um briefly so abraham uh abram at fir- as, as his name was at first 
was a dude uh, who had a wife named Sarai. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff happens to Abram. So I'm going to summarize, but even the summary is going to be pretty long. Uh, he was living with his father and his half-sister slash wife Sarai and his nephew Lot. And the story goes he was instructed by God to leave the lands of his forefathers and travel to another land which God would indicate to him. Uh, in return for his blind obedience, Abram was promised that he would be the father of a whole passel of children, a fairly unique promise because Sarai was his only wife and she was reportedly infertile. Hey, so, long on. story short, what, yes. What the heck is a passel? Like a lot. Okay, a large like a, number. Like a lot. Okay, that's just not a word in my lexicon, but gotcha. Yeah, um, like a barrel full, I guess. Oh, so like I don't know one. the exact unit of measurement one uses for a passel. Like, uh, I don't know, gentle listeners, if any of you know volumetrically or, uh. I don't know what the Latin root word for weight is. Whatever unit a passel is, please let us know. <laughs> Indeed. Moving Sorry, on. Carry on. Yeah. Long story short, at 75 years of age, he packs up his wife, his entire household, all his animals and his slaves, and he owned a bunch of slaves, and his goods, and he fucks off to Egypt. Uh, this is convenient in terms of divine instructions, as it goes, because there was a pretty serious famine in Canaan at the time, which is where he was living, and there was a marked lack of famine in Egypt. So, good work, mysterious divinity. Uh, in any event, after the move, some time passes, and like 25 years uh, go by, and God just sort of decrees that his name is Abraham now, and his wife's name is Sarah, because she's not Sarai, which translates to basically my Sarah anymore. She's everybody's Sarah now, because they need to cut a chunk off their junk, and he can be the father of nations. Um, uh -huh. Abraham takes this super seriously, and he has his entire household, including himself at age 100, and the 13-year-old kid that he fathered on his wife's maidservant, Hagar, Dude's name was Ishmael, future progenitor of Islam. He had all of them cock chopped. Just all of them just got a nug lopped off the top. Um, God tells Abraham he's going to be the father of nations. And Abraham is like, buddy, I'm, I'm 100. My wife is 90. Do you know how much of a damn hassle babies would be at even half of our age? Like, wowza. Uh, three dudes show up in the presence of the divine. And Abraham decides to bust out the hospitality for them because the Jewish God is real big on, on like pop quiz testing people and it's best to hedge one's bets. So in any event, he has his wife make fancy bread. He slaughters a choice calf. He washes their feet, which was a big deal. The three dudes eat. They sleep over at his place. And the next day they're like, all right, my dude, we'll be back in a year and y'all gonna have a baby. Uh, later on, there was this thing where Sodom and Gomorrah were declared too sinful to continue, and Abraham spent some time pleading with a purportedly omnipotent being not to murder two entire cities worth of people. Uh, he haggles them down, so if there are ten people uh, in the city that are like sort of okay, uh, God won't glass the place. Suffice it to say, they don't find ten sort of okay people in the city. 
and Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped out. Uh, at this point, Sarah has that baby they've been talking about, uh, and they name him Isaac. Isaac also got cock chopped because, you know, covenant. And then after Abraham sends Ishmael and his mother out into the desert to die uh, for um, inheritance reasons, I believe, they don't die. Uh, see Islam. Um, God comes back and is all, hey, uh, you remember that kid that I gave you, the one you had when you were 100 and your wife was 90 and it was uh, like a big miracle We made a big deal about it? Yeah, I want you to drag him up a mountain and I want you to knife the little shit in my honor. And Abraham is pretty deep in at this point. He's he's pretty... He just goes with it. Uh, he goes about obeying this instruction. Right before he kills the kid, God's like, psych, and tells him everything is fine and don't murder his son. Uh, listen, Abraham is a weird dude with a weird story, all right? So they kill a ram instead that they found stuck in a bush nearby because bushes are hazardous, okay? And then Abraham's descendants breed like lunatics and the whole father of nations promise is fulfilled. And that is a very, very abbreviated version of the story of Abraham. So Sodom and Gomorrah were in Egypt. Sodom and Gomorrah. um, I don't know where Sodom and Gomorrah were. I feel like they were near there. By that point he was living in Egypt. Right. So somewhere in Africa. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, that story gets much more specific. Like, apparently, they send two angels disguised as two random dudes to Lot's house, who lives there. This is not really addressed that Lot lives in, like, awful sin town. Okay. Uh, they send these two dudes to Lot's house. And the townspeople gather around Lot's house and start rattling the doors like, hey, those two dudes that showed up, we want to bone them. We really want to bone them. And lots like, no, they're, they're my guests. You can't, you can't just bone my guests here. You can have my two virgin daughters. And the townspeople were like, and eh, no, no, we're going to, we're going to take your house guests. Uh, and then they all had to book it. Dang. Yeah. That might be an exaggeration. Like in terms of assessing biblical accuracy, I, I don't, I don't know how many towns there are where that's what would actually go down. Um, it just feels like propaganda to me. Yes, it does feel that way. But anyway, shall we move forward? We shall. So, of of the loins of Abraham, faintly mutilated though they became, um, sprung. At first two, but then a third faith. Uh, the first being Judaism, the second being Islam, and then eventually Christianity. Wait, wait, wait. Christianity first, right? Sure, bud. Yeah. Well, no, I I think like in, in time order, right? No. Historically? No. No? Christianity before Judaism and Islam? No, no, no. Christianity before Islam, historically. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. I don't have good math on and numbers on that, so I can't answer that question with any real authority. Um, I can talk about Judaism. All right, do that. Let's, let's talk about Judaism. Judaism is named after Judah, uh, the leader and patriarch of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, 
remember I talked about how Abraham's descendants bred like lunatics? They, oh, they yeah. did like a lot. There were 12 large tribes. There were 11 other ones, if we're doing our mental math correctly. Uh, one of them, uh, the tribe of Levi, or Levi, got kind of rolled up into Judah's tribe over the course of centuries of warfare. And the other 10 kind of got absorbed into other nearby and surrounding countries over several other centuries of war in the region. Um, Judaism in, in modern times is a combination of a faith and a culture. Uh, and due to extant socioeconomic factors, it's also sort of an ethnicity. Ethni- ethnicity. ethnicity. Uh, Jewish populations tend to have a long history of mild to moderate inbreeding. Uh, just because they're typically separate from the surrounding population. And they interbreed primarily with other mildly inbred Jewish populations, uh, resulting in some very, very clear genetic markers of Jewish heritage. Uh, Jewish tradition lends itself really, really well to creating extremely tight-knit, close populations that are kept separate from the larger populace in, I guess, the host country where the Jewish community exists. Uh, which is considered a major reason that Jews still exist after all the centuries of people trying to murder us a bit. Culturally and religiously, Judaism revolves around... uh, We're going to start with the Torah, which translates to law, consisting of the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Specifically, living a Jewish life involves observing as many of the 613 commandments in the Torah as possible. Uh, Some of them aren't observable anymore because there isn't a Jewish temple, like Big T temple, not just like Temple Beth Israel, wherever. Um, So like there's no ceremonial Jewish sacrifice anymore. We don't, we don't sacrifice animals to God anymore because we have to do that at the temple. And there isn't one. Uh, In addition to the Torah, which is is the written law, a major part of Judaism is referred to as the oral law. Oral law is a series of reinterpretations of the written law uh, to evaluate the law and bring it into various stages of modernity. Uh, There are several major discourses, the two biggest of which are the Mishnah, which was a, a commentary and interpretation of the Torah by a bunch of rabbis, And then there's the Talmud, which re-examines both the original law and the Mishnah, and then lays out a lot of the rulings issued by rabbis over the centuries. Uh, There's another series of writings called the Midrash, which is more oral tradition and interpreted law. There are more books as well, like prophets and writings, which fall into the category of written law, and then a whole boatload of rabbinic texts and stories and discussions and parables and like, wow, rabbis love to talk and argue and write it down. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And a lot of those books fall into the category, the Christian category of old Testament. But in Jewish tradition, there are only three books, three works that are considered divine law. And those Um, are, there's the Torah, uh, there's the Nevim, which is the writings of the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which also means writings. Okay. 
those are the big three. Um, in a purely religious sense, uh, Jews believe in a single deity that is typically just called God. Uh, in the very ancient past, there might have been other flavors of proto-Jewish deities, uh, but these days, it's just God. Uh, because Hebrew is a hypergendered language, God is typically assigned masculine characteristics. Uh, there's a Hebrew and well, an Aramaic spelling for the word God, but it's actually euphemized, and then the euphemisms are further euphemized. Uh, so the actual word that describes the name of God is uh, a remnant, like a tiny fragment of a much, much, much longer name that was written in the Holy of Holies in the original temple, the holiest room that only one dude was ever allowed to go in, hmm. uh, like the highest of the high priests. And when the temple was destroyed, there's only a little tiny fragment of that name that's left. It's only four characters long, and it is considered so holy that nobody is allowed to say it out loud. Uh, and it can only be written in carefully controlled circumstances. Like if you write these four characters on a piece of paper, that piece of paper is now automatically also holy and like must be disposed of in a very careful, purposeful way. Um, Do you know this holy word? I mean, a lot of textbooks will spell it out as Yahweh. Okay. Yeah. That's it's, it's never written with vowels in Hebrew, so pronouncing it isn't really a thing. Gotcha. Like, even in works in Hebrew that are written with vowels, because vowels are just added above and below the characters in Hebrew script, um, even in texts that have vowels, this word is never written with vowels. It's clear that it's never meant to be pronounced. Hmm. Um, the primary euphemisms for this word, God, translate to my lord, the ruler, uh, my master, things like that. Um, but those words have also developed sufficient holiness that you're not supposed to say them unless you're in the process of praying or studying. So huh. there's the one that you're never allowed to say. There's the few of them that you're only supposed to say when you're praying or studying. Uh, but that don't actually contain the word for God anymore. It's just like an address. Hmm. And then there are second layer euphemisms that allow for the discussion of God in more casual conversation. Uh, they translate roughly to the name, the Lord's name, the eternal, like it gets more and more vague. Like Jews are super serious about how they refer to their divinity. And, and etymologically it's fascinating Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Uh, relevant to our particular purpose, uh, Judaism's mystical disciplines are referred to collectively as Kabbalah uh, or Kabbalah to anglicize it. Much of Kabbalah comes from a book called the Zohar and several branches of divination, secret languages and other mystical arts are either written of in the actual text or extracted by rabbinical study. So numerology in particular features very strongly. Each letter in Hebrew is assigned a numeric value in addition to its pronunciation. Uh, so every letter is like there's one through 10 and then it goes by tens to a hundred and uh, there's 22 total characters. So you can express pretty much any number by combining the values of the letters. Uh, and then 
using the letters that comprise the words, uh, meaning can be drawn by comparing numerical values assigned to each word or sentence to other things that have a similar numerical value or certain numbers are considered important on their own. Um, but there's a lot that's done with that. Gotcha. Um, I've seen Kabbalah uh, written both with a, a Q first and a K first. Which one's correct? Um, I don't think there is a correct oh. per se. Because okay. again, the word is a Hebrew word. Right. So the letter that it starts with is a kuf. Right, right. So there's no it doesn't, actual... Yeah. Well, it doesn't perfectly translate to English letters. Sure. So if somebody wants to write it with a Q, that's fine. If somebody wants to write it with a K, that's fine. Like, how do you spell Hanukkah? Like... Gotcha. There's, there's not necessarily a correct way. Gotcha. Um, as long as people get it, you're usually okay. Okay. Oh, just as a matter of record... Yeah. I, while you were talking there, I did Google it, and uh, Christianity, 1st century CE, and uh, Islam, 7th century. Cool. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, no worries. All right, so we're on to Christianity. That we are. So first off, let's start out by pointing out that Christianity is named after the central character of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, most understanding authority... is that Christ is a title. Correct, and we'll get to that, yes. Okay. Uh, most authorities agree that he was a historical religious teacher. Um, may have Many people have argued that Christ and the Buddha may have actually been the same person, um, but were tailoring their teachings to the cultures they encountered on their travels. Again, that's just an argument some academics have made. Take that as you will. Uh, one thing that is important to mention before moving forward is that much of what we know about the teachings of this individual today come from the Holy Bible, which was compiled sometime between 200 and 300 years after his apparent death. Um, there are vast volumes of older Christian literature, which did not make their way into the New Testament and are either locked away in the Vatican Library or lost to time. Once in a while, things like this do surface, though, like the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1946. Um, and with I've seen those. They're pretty cool. They're super cool, yeah. And with excavation and new discoveries continuing all the, all the way up to uh, 2017, like that, um, that cave was continually being excavated, and they kept finding more and more of them, which is really neat. Yep. Um, so would that the books that were left out, would that be the Apocrypha? I, that yes, that, that I believe that's the correct term for it, right? Like writings that are considered of like contemporaneous merit, but not necessarily Jesus-y enough to go into the Bible. Or at least not how they wanted to frame what they wanted the church to become. It's okay. my understanding, and uh, some people in the, a lot of people in the Christian community will probably disagree with this, but the formation of the church as it became was a political move. Um, it wasn't just priests that were at the meeting. And I forget specifically what it was called, where they decided what books would go into the Bible. There was also so there was a, like a specific there. individual meeting. Yeah. Like we can trace the Bible back to like one long meeting that like could have been an email. Yeah, if internet had existed at the time, <laughs> sure. <Right. laughs> um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So there was like a 
a sit down that took place and people decided, okay, these are the books we're going to put in. And I'm going to have to argue that, that that was political, that there was a uh, very specific choices made for specific reasons to set the church up in um, a way. If to- it was that, that fits with tradition. Judaism is extremely political. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the traditions of early Christianity come directly out of Jewish tradition and practice. Exactly. Um, we should also mention probably that Jesus was a Jew. Uh, no. He was most lo- likely not a white dude. And even if he was Caucasian living in the Middle East, he would have quite a tan. So this he was uh, blonde-haired, brown blue-eyed or Jesus. de facto brown. Yeah. So no blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan Jesus. That's not a thing. Not even a brown-haired, blue-eyed Aryan Jesus. Correctamundo. Uh, according to legend, he was born of a virgin birth. Can we call that legend? According to scripture, according to... We'll call it legend. Legend, according scripture, to legend, myth. Uh, according to uh, root and toot and tall tale, uh, <laughs> Jesus was born of a virgin birth uh, on a day that was later decided to be Christmas, although it conveniently coincides with a number of pagan holidays that have been practiced far longer and take place around the same time, like Saturnalia. Uh, His crucifixion is honored on Good Friday. Uh, I've never understood why that Friday was so good. Uh, Not for him, but uh, I think the idea is he died for everyone's sins, so it's like good for all of us, right? I think. So, like, it's it's sort of like a a socialist good, in the sense that, like, the good of the many... Right, is more important right. than the the one not being stabbed and hoisted hey, up on a okay. sweet socialist uh, so, Jesus. Right, socialist Good Friday, uh, which is the first day of Lent, a time period where you are supposed to give up something you love, which I and most Jews I know refer to as fish season. Um, yes, yes, it is. You're you're not supposed to eat meat on Fridays, so fish usually goes on sale during Lent, and that's always nice. Um. Until the time of Jesus' supposed resurrection on Easter, which is the end of Lent. Uh, growing up, that was just a nice day off school for me. Yeah. And there's like those really good um, Reese's uh, eggs. Oh, those are good. Out around then. Those are the Although, best. Although, not going to lie, those chocolate bunnies taste a lot like acid and vegetable oil. The bunnies? They taste yeah. terrible. Oh, those are disgusting. not delicious. No, fuck like this. I remember like nine year old Kevin visiting a friend's house uh, right around Easter and they were like, you want some Easter candy? Absolutely. Little Kevin wanted Easter candy. Right. Uh, tried a little bit of bunny. Highly disappointed. Dude. And you would always like, so if you're a Christian kid or like, you know, your family celebrated Easter or whatever, you sometimes get like the really giant bunny and you'd be really, really excited until you picked it up and realized it was hollow. And oh, like, fuck. This is oh. there's there's no chocolate here. It's a shell. <laughs> what is that? I know, right? That oh, that's some bullshit. I didn't even know. Yeah, that's they, terrible. Yeah, I'd rather have like a dense chocolate bar than a big hollow bunny. Gentle listeners, if any of you grew up observing Easter, specifically the receiving of large chocolate bunnies. And the chocolate was subpar, and also it was only a shell. You have our deepest condolences. Indeed. Yeah, although it was really fun to break their heads off. That does sound fun. i go with that. Um, again, this whole death and resurrection thing is repeated throughout many ancient traditions that predate Christianity. 
And the time of Easter is also the rebirth period in many pagan holidays. It's often seen as a time of fertility, uh, maypole rituals. Yeah, exactly. Right? Everything's coming back to life. It's a seasonal thing. You've got maypole rituals taking place. Um, one tradition that actually really survived in a lot of places in Europe, despite like vast Christianization of those regions. Um, but we could actually probably talk more about that at some other point in time in a different episode. Uh, Christians say that Jesus Christ was the actual name and that he is the Messiah or Savior. But it's important to understand Christ is a title, as we sort of talked about earlier. We did. It's the English version of the Latin word Christos, which means the anointed one. So while Jesus may have been his name, Christos is certainly not part of it. It wasn't originally Jesus, though, either, was it? Like, it was Yeshua, if I remember correctly. Yeah, which is what? Joshua, right? Yehoshua is Joshua. Yeshua would, I guess, be Jesus, but that wasn't the dude's original name either. Right. So it would be Yeshua Christos, and you don't hear about that guy. No, who's that? That's uh, that was his I name during that period in the Bible that he's gone, like when he's a teenager. Nobody right, knows. that was his that was his angry rebellion phase. It's like burning down villages or something, making cabinetry. Yeah, but like angry cabinetry, banging desperate housewives. Uh, sure, that's probably something Jesus did in his rascal and roused about late teen years. <laughs> so Jesus is part of the Holy Trinity in Christianity. Uh, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Ghost, Woo! Uh, which are believed to be three parts of the same whole individual. So when Jesus was talking to God, he was really just talking to himself. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I've never really thought ontologically of like, if it's a, if it's a Trinity, that's a single person, it's just two dudes talking and also it's haunted. but here you can see uh, a masculinized version of the triple goddesses which we'll discuss later uh, as we talked about in our last episode of side quests uh, with archbishop michael manasco hand hand gentle listeners go listen there is a lot of ritual in christianity ritual cleansing through baptism the eucharist where uh, the priest blesses wine and bread transforming them into the body and blood of Jesus. There's also, yeah. uh, Yeah. That could get super awkward. Uh, There's also a belief in demons and the devil and that exorcism can be done to expel evil. Uh, There's also a lot of mystic or Gnostic Christianity, uh, which is the topic of a whole episode we will do later on. Yeah, totally. Um, Simon Magnus and all that. And also all the, the St. John of the Cross stuff, like Dark Knight of the Soul. I think we should dig into that at some point. Sure. Just for funsies, here's this. Let's talk about Mithraism. Mithraism. Uh, this was a mystery religion, sort of, in Rome that was thought of as a revival of early Christianity. It was, like all mystery traditions, initiatory. Um, There were several degrees of initiation. They met in underground temples, and the belief was popular throughout the expanse of the Roman Empire, as far north as Britain, as far east as Syria, and as far south as Roman Africa. So like all initiatory traditions, there was an oath of secrecy 
to the teachings, thus mystery religion. Uh, because of this, there are no surviving texts of Mithraism, and everything we know is extrapolated from archaeological evidence found while excavating their temples, which sounds super cool, by the way. Uh, I really want to have a dope underground temple and start a mystery religion. We can do that. That sounds super fun. We just need those followers on Patreon. We can start a cult. We do. Maybe maybe that's what... Maybe we'll call our Patreon followers initiates. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That could be a thing. So Mithraism appears to have been wiped out due to persecution by Christians during the 4th century AD. Yeah. So according to Manly P. Hall, Mithraism originated in uh, Persia and found its way into Southern Europe. Mithra is um, from Zoroastrianism and is a title for the sun. So again, we have an example of sun worship, uh, a thing that we forgot to mention when talking about Christianity earlier. Christ is referred to as the son of God, though is part of God himself. And many people have uh, seen this as an example of uh, sort of like hidden sun worship within Christianity or at very least uh, an attempt to coax pagan sun worshipers into the religion. Anywho, again, we find ourselves a tradition based on abstinence, self-control, and moral conduct, similar to Zoroastrianism. Sure. Uh, According to Hall, there were three degrees in Mithraism. The initiation upon the first granted a golden crown representing the spiritual nature of the individual, At the second degree, the initiate received armor of intelligence and descended into the depths of the temple to do battle with their carnal desires, uh, which sounds like an orgy with extra steps. Kind of, yeah. Um, And then upon the third degree, they were given a cape woven with astrological symbols and were hailed as one who has died and been resurrected. Um. Those who passed all three of these initiations were referred to as lions and were marked upon the brow with the Egyptian Ankh. You know that like cross thing with the loopy de loop on top? Yeah. A symbol of eternal life uh, carried by like all the Egyptian gods and the depictions of them. Uh, now, this is kind of sort of the international symbol for vampire through pop culture, largely through like White Wolf Gaming and Vampire the Masquerade. Um, but anyway, the lion symbolized the sacrifice of man to die and be reborn, saving humanity, similar to the idea of uh, Jesus Christos dying and for the sins of humanity uh, so that everybody can go to heaven. Hall believes that uh, even though the Mithraic traditions were wiped out by uh, the Christianization of Rome, some of their ideas survived into the uh, the Freemasonic traditions, such as the lion paw grip of the Master Mason's handshake. Uh, I want to talk about Islam next, you know, chronologically. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so Muslims believe in one supreme God, Allah. Uh, Muhammad was his messenger. Their holy book is called the Quran. I am on a government watch list in the United States for purchasing a copy of the Quran in 2009 because racism and xenophobia are hallmarks of U.S. culture. That's that's really a watch list? Uh, Yes, I was specifically told by the Barnes & Noble uh, clerk that they were placing me on a mandatory government watch list. Okay. Even though 9-11 happened in 2001... It did. Um, 
we were still at war in the Middle East, which that's true. Are we still at war in the Middle East? Are we always at war in the Middle East? Who's Europa at war with today? How much paperwork is there involved in keeping a record of people that buy Qurans? It's got to be fucking epic. It does. I guess data storage is cheap these days. Uh, Muslims, on the whole, uh, accept that Jesus was a prophet, but not the last prophet, and they believe that the New Testament was largely uh, corrupted and the true teachings of Christ have been lost. Uh, They believe that he was a mortal human chosen to spread the message of Allah. Some key elements of Islam include uh, prayer facing Mecca, five times every day at very specific times, uh, fasting, specifically during the holy period of Ramadan, charity, um, once per life, taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, although they specifically say it's only those who are like physically able. So if you're like crippled or, you know, your old grandma in the wheelchair, like they don't expect you to go. But, um, you know, if you are able, like bodily able and monetarily able you're expected make the old college try yeah you're expected to, to do that um there's alms giving which is providing 2.5 percent of your income to supporting the islamic community um this is part of that charity aspect though it's not something separate um and these together along with the declaration of faith constitute what's called the five pillars of islam all right uh let's branch out into sufism Uh, often defined as Islamic mysticism. Uh, It is centered around the individual's personal experience and individual's advance via transmission of divine light from teacher to student. Okay. Um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but um, dikar dikar are similar in some respects to mantras um, in Hinduism and are repeated either aloud or in the mind as a form of prayer. This is something that comes from Sufism or Sufism. Some of these include the repetition of the divine names or divine phrases, such as Allah Akbar, which means God is good, or Subhan Allah, which I probably mispronounced, but means uh, glory be to God. Uh, The practice of Murakaba, uh, which I've also probably butchered, is similar to meditation there's also whirling or spinning such as the practice done by sufi dervishes yes Uh, the aim being to reach the state of all perfection by dropping the ego listening to certain music focusing on god spinning in circles imitating the nature of planets orbiting the sun And again, we have another practice that reaches back into archaic shamanism and pulls forth the method of entering gnosis. Let's let's move into a discussion of more modern ceremonial magic and modern magic, right? Yeah, Um, I think that's a great idea. Uh, The Ordo Templi Orientis, which I believe should be said in exactly that voice. Every time. The Ordo Templi Orientis. The no, Ordo Templi Orientis uh, is a largely European cluster of rites, branch philosophies, and occult lodges uh, originally associated with continental Freemasonry, uh, originally founded by Carl Kellnor and Theodore Ru- uh, Royce? Royce 
in the like late 1800s, early 1900s, so a bit of an 1100-year gap there. Uh, the most prominent member of the OTO was Alistair Crowley. Mr. Crowley. Crowley? I don't know. That's how Ozzy sings it. Yeah. Uh, we'll discuss him in much more depth in a future episode and further along in this episode. The OTO did a lot with older European and Middle Eastern rites, structured with degrees similar to masonry. Uh, specifically, the OTO received dispensation to staple a bunch of older, widespread rites together. Uh, right in this case uh, refers to a school of Masonic or occult practice rather than a singular ritual, more like a like an in- initiatory art or, or faith would be a rite. Uh, some of the rites amalgamated by the OTO include... Uh, the ancient and primitive rite of Memphis Mizraim, uh, the ancient and accepted Scottish rite of Freemasonry, the Swedenborg rite, and the rites of the Martinist order. These are all various flavors of old Masonic tradition and related practice, and we won't go into more detail right now because the history of Masonry and related societies would take a good couple of episodes up all on their own. We need uh, to pull Tyler back for some of that stuff. We do. Uh, if we can't get a hold of Tyler, gentle listeners, if anyone is an expert in traditional, regular, and irregular masonry, and you're willing to talk to us on the internet, let us know. We would love to interview you for a rundown, because this stuff is pretty nifty, and we're on an interview kick lately. In any case, Crowley composed a ceremony referred to as the Gnostic Mass in 1913, which became the primary form of uh, faith and practice of the OTO. And he brought it and the rest of the system to America in 1914 when World War I broke out. Because he didn't want to be in World War I. I wouldn't have wanted to be in World War I. Nah, dude, those trenches sucked. Right? Uh, after Carl Kellner died, Crowley and Royce had a series of disagreements and exchanged some really funny, angry letters about the direction of the organization. Uh, Royce died on October 28th, 1923, notable only because that's also my birthday. Uh, Crowley took over the OTO at that point, which he had been leading in the USA for some time. We also have the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, This was a magical secret society dedicated to the study of the occult, metaphysics, the paranormal, and uh, became the single most influential organization in magic in the 20th century, according to some, anyway. According to some. Much of modern Wicca carries elements of the practices of the Golden Dawn within it, uh, like masonry and the mystery schools and the OTO that we just talked about. The Golden Dawn had uh, initiated people through degrees. Uh, The first degree focused on uh, Hermetic Kabbalah, uh, the four classical Western elements, the tarot, uh, astrology, and geomancy, which uh, is... Uh, I thought it had to do with the environment and, and mapping and natural rock formations. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The second degree, uh, referred to as the Ruby Cross, taught astral travel, scrying, magic, and I guess, uh, to some extent, alchemy? Yeah, Um, the third order, uh, where those, uh, considered highly skilled and supposedly directed the activities of the lower orders through spirit communication. There were, uh, sub degrees within the major degrees, uh, 
So sort of the Golden Dawn was an attempted revival of the mystery traditions as well as a magical secret society. Aleister Crowley was also a member of the Golden Dawn. Uh, when we do a whole episode on him, we'll also talk about all the drama surrounding that. But we'll Dude leave that around. alone. Dude got around in several different ways of, of understanding that sentence. Yeah, and he's like loosely connected to a, a bunch of other weird shit. But he is. Anyway, yeah. Uh, in 2002, the open source order of the Golden Dawn was formed as a sort of modern revival. Uh, it is now closed, but the website is still active, and you can get access to a wide variety of Golden Dawn literature from it. Uh, that site is osogd.org for the yeah. curious. Yeah, there's a, a, I haven't trolled all the way through, but there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, so if you want to, if you're interested in ceremonial magic and you don't want to like buy Krieg's book or weed through the vast volumes of Aleister Crowley's work, oh my God. Uh, just hop on osogd.org and you can at least get yourself started. Let's talk about Aleister Crowley a little more. A little more. Yeah, let's just hit some brief points uh, for those of you interested. If you've never heard the song Mr. Crowley by Ozzy Osbourne, beautiful song. Love it. It is. Um, go check that out. Uh, we are on our way into a, a very long episode here, so I don't really want to go into too much about him right now, but just to, let's hit a few bullet points here. Yeah, hit a few. Uh, in his day... He was referred to by the media as the most evil man in the world. He developed a religion and philosophical doctrine called Thelema or Thelma. Uh, he was a magician, one who was known for having incredible abilities. Sexuality and drug use uh, played a big part in Crowley's uh, magic and rituals and just like breaking taboos in general. Uh, his work has influenced a huge portion of modern occultism from modern ceremonial magic, uh, Wicca, chaos magic, Satanism, a lot of them kind of harken back to him. If I'm not mistaken, he was also the first person to add the K to the end of magic to differentiate between um, stage magic and, and spiritual magic. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Thelema or Thelema. Yeah, I, I don't exactly know how it's pronounced, but yeah, sure. We should, let's... Bump Touch a couple on real quick. points on that as well. It's considered by some to be a religion and by others to only really be a, a philosophy. So by those who consider it a religion, it is uh, on par with like a modern mystery religion, initiatory and all that stuff. Yeah. So you could absolutely become like a, a, a practitioner of it, I guess. But there were or still are perhaps... Uh, groups that go through the initiatory process and and all that. One of the most important concepts in it is the idea that each individual has a true will or purpose, kind of like Dharma and Hinduism. And as long as the individual follows their true will, the universe will be in balance. Okay. The religion was based on a spiritual experience Mr. Crowley had in 1904 while performing a ceremonial magic ritual in a pyramid in Egypt, he claimed to be contacted by some kind of uh, being that went by the name of Aiwas, uh, which he drew. And I guess it looks kind of supposedly, I haven't seen the original picture, but supposedly, according to um, some stuff I saw on the internet and some other podcasts I've listened to and uh a friend I know who has like 
a bunch of first edition Crowley books. Um, the thing he drew looked like what people modernly call gray aliens. And I'm not a believer in extraterrestrials having ever contacted human beings, but the idea that this guy drew that picture uh, 50, 60, 70 some years before anybody else said, hey, I saw a weird thing like that uh, kind of creeps me out a little bit. Okay. Uh, after his experience, Crowley wrote The Book of the Law, aka The Liber Legis, uh, which is sort of the foundational book for Thelema, though it is expanded upon in his later works. Yeah, supposedly that book was uh, dictated to our man, aka by the Awas creature itself spirit entity whatever it was um but if you read the book of the law and read the rest of crowley's work it's really stylistically too similar to have been crafted by anyone other than himself unless the entire catalog was dictated to him i mean i suppose that's possible Uh, there are lots of components to dilemma aside from the following of one's true will there's a whole cosmology and a system of ceremonial magic practice a degree system a system of ethics it's very elaborate. We're going to do a whole episode on ethics and codes of honor. It's something I've been doing on and off for years um, now and then bumped into Condensed Chaos by Phil Fine and found his section on personal codes of honor to be really interesting and have started to work on mine uh, quite a bit more. Uh, I think it's a really important component of occult practice to flesh out one's own code of ethics. So we'll probably do a side quest or maybe a full episode on that. Okay. Coming up. Uh- uh, dilemma also, like many faiths, has its own holidays and many things we can maybe look at for a future episode or side quest. Yeah, sure. Totally. Uh, let's touch on, well, I say touch on, let's move into modern Wicca. Yeah. Um, did you ever see that documentary, The Occult Experience? No. Uh, you should, first of all. Um, it's on YouTube. It's really grainy and the video is hard to watch, but it, it's kind of interesting. In there, they referred to Wicca as the craft of the wise. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's a term I'd never really heard used for that before. No, I haven't either. Yeah. It fits though. What's that? Yeah, definitely. It fits. fits. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, Wick is about mostly working with, uh, earth energies. It sort of came about as a result of Gerald Gardner's work. Uh, he claimed to be, uh, claimed it to be a direct revival of the pagan practices still alive in, Ireland, though some of his work is clearly influenced by Crowley's writings. Gardnerian Wicca and subsequent branches of Wicca are positively oriented uh, and and frequently avoid doing any kind of black or ill-intentioned magic. Yeah, certainly. Um, in the occult experience, one of the people being interviewed described witchcraft as something that allows you to truly become yourself uh, and includes... The element of skyclad or, or ritual nudity I, that I believe we've talked about in the past, saying that it, it's hard to hide from your true nature, your true self, when you're completely unclothed. Uh, Alexander Sanders went by the craft name of Verbius, uh, known as the king of the witches at one point in time, founded the path of Alexandrian Wicca. I guess he was originally initiated into Gardnerian Wicca, eventually founded his own coven as a high priest, and Alexandrian Wicca followed that. Yeah, that from my understanding, that's the case. The difference between the two is Gard- Gardnerian Wicca is a, a combination of things Gardner took from the New Forest uh, coven 
and mixed with some elements of ceremonial magic, Kabbalah, and the writings of a few um, other occultists like Aleister Crowley. Uh, the New Forest Coven, which Gardner claimed was uh, traditionally practiced, uh, traditional practice, sorry, that held out since pre-Christian times. So like Alexandrian Wicca, which we'll talk about next, the material of Gardnerian Wicca is oath-bound and cannot be shared with anyone outside the coven. Right, so good luck just kind of like picking up a, a solid book on it. Right. Um, there are I mean, some. Gardner, Gardner, yeah, Gardner himself wrote books, but like it's Extensive not Extensive books. We should also point out that we, uh, we've said it before that everything's made up. You know, the, the phrase, nothing is real and everything is permitted. But there's a good deal of contention out there about how much uh, Gardnerian Wicca was actually entirely made up by him himself. Uh, one example is the rules or guidelines referred to as the Ard- Ardnes, which seem to contain a mix of modern and uh, ancient language. So um, I guess according to several historians and a few other people, um, it just doesn't seem like they don't seem to fit a specific linguistic pattern for the time. Yeah, that supposedly they came from. Moving on to Sanders, though. Um, Sanders was already an occultist and a ceremonial magician prior to being initiated into a Gardnerian coven uh, and eventually leaves, starts his own. And for these reasons, Alexandrian Wiccan has stronger flavors of ceremonial magic with a light balance of Gardnerian Wicca in there. Okay. There's a lot of emphasis on the polarity of genders in Alexandrian Wicca, um, but also the Alexandrian branch views everyone as a priest or priestess, which is pretty interesting. That is. Reminds me of how Discordianism views everyone as the Pope. Yeah, right? Uh, All of that said, the lines are sort of blurred between the two styles nowadays, Uh, But you can't dedicate yourselves as one of these traditions and operate alone. You have to be initiated into a lineage. There are also degree systems in both of those. And for those who practice Wicca, but specifically don't follow one of these two paths, they're often called uh, Neo-Wiccans. On top of that, there are a number of other strands and branches of Wicca. Uh, There's Dianic Wicca, which emphasizes the goddess, though they have mixed covens. There is Celtic Wicca. There is Gregorian Wicca. Yeah, and of course, there are those who work in covens or groups of witches who practice together and celebrate the Sabbaths. There are solitary witches who work entirely alone. Um, But regardless, if you're male or female in Wicca, you are called a witch. We don't really have warlocks. I do believe that some satanic groups use the term warlock. Okay. You know, we've talked about wicca a lot we've never actually explained what it is yeah now i guess i assume that most people listening to the show would probably already sort of know what wicca is already but that is an assumption and i should never assume so while we are going to do a series on it later on let's kind of dive into a brief description now shall we okay so most of traditional wicca is duotheistic meaning there are two main deities uh, there is the goddess and the horned god. Sometimes the goddess is portrayed as a trinity, the triple goddess, represented by the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Yes, that is where Game of Thrones got that phrase from. So the three of them represent virginity, fertility, and wisdom. Some people who are 
fond of comparative religious analysis have drawn parallels between the Wiccan god and goddess system, representing male and female energy, and the Taoist yin-yang system. Uh, there are also polytheistic, atheistic, and agnostic Wiccan traditions. Some Wiccans believe in an afterlife, although the form that, that takes often varies from tradition to tradition. For example... Raymond Buckland believes Wiccans only reincarnate into other human bodies, while um, others believe that you can reincarnate into any form. Some don't believe in an afterlife at all. Some do. Uh, so you can see that there's sort of a wide variety here to, to talk about uh, when we go off and do our own series on, uh, on Wicca. There is also, of course, a belief in magic, the circle, the five elements, a variety of spirits and other components we've already talked about and which we'll continue to talk about as we move through our content here. Hey, so um, we've talked about Wicca. Let's get into Satanism. Let's. Satanism and chaos magic sort of come around at the same time period. Satanism a little bit earlier in the mid to late 60s, while as chaos magic sort of starts bubbling in the, the early 70s. Um, there's pretty good interview in that uh, documentary I mentioned, The Occult Experience, sure. where one of the people says something along the lines of every tradition includes an element of practitioners uh, waiting for a deity or deities to put their arms around them and say, you're protected. You are one of us. We, as Satanists, take responsibility for ourselves, for our own lives and our own actions. This is something, uh, if you go back and look at early Anton LaVey interviews, he talked a lot about um, how most religions are like based on fear and abstinence rather than indulgence in various pleasures. LaVey kind of, he literally wanted to create something quite the opposite from that. And that, and you know, that's legit. Yeah, it is like, why should we live our lives in fear that it's a control mechanism? It's all political in my opinion. Um, so from that desire, Satanism came forth. And as a side note, I really love Anton LaVey's voice. Fair. Uh, Satanism seems to be really up to the interpretation of the practitioner as it is individually and hedonistically focused. Some Satanists practice magic, others do not. Satanism is basically hedonistic and humanistic and its magical or ritual practices draw on a wide body of occult traditions. Uh, like all well-established religions, there will eventually be offshoots. Uh, one example of this is the Temple of Set, which is in many ways a sect of Satanism, though over time it's become separate, uh, distinct, kind of in many ways its own. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. we don't really have time to dig into all of the pieces of it now. No, we don't. Um, but yeah, it is, uh, it's sprung from Satanism in as many ways, sa a satanic religion, although I think um, the founders of it now um, and practitioners of it would say that they are not specifically Satanists. Right. Uh, similarly, Luciferian Luciferianism is uh, also sometimes considered a sect of Satanism, though it really depends on the beliefs of the individual practitioner. The Satanic Temple is another offshoot, though it is um, it has some pretty significant differences, like being based on Satan and literature rather than uh, specifically Anton LaVey's writings. Although it's it's very 
inspired. The Satanic Temple really slams the Church of Satan quite a bit on their website. Some of their criticism is absolutely fair, uh, while some of their other criticisms are a little... Uh, we can save that interplay for our episode on Satanism. Yes, um, we can do that. I think uh, if you're interested in Satanism, obviously we're going to do an episode on it in the future, but uh, you could go on YouTube. You can watch the interviews with Anton LaVey, especially his really early ones, I think are really interesting because he's kind of like approaching it as this like fun, friendly, but also like black Pope kind of guy. You could also watch uh, that documentary Hail Satan, which focuses on the Satanic Temple. Um, If you still want to learn more, I'd say... Check out both the Church of Satan and the Temple of Satan's website. Uh, There's a good deal of information there. Your next step would obviously be to read the Satanic Bible um, or look up your local chapter. I don't know. I think um, I do have a local chapter, uh, Satanic Portland, and they actually seceded from uh, the Satanic Temple due to their, like, slowness in response time to basically like how like our local group wanted to protest all the the neo-nazis and stuff showing up and starting shit in our city um so they left but uh i think maybe we'll do a side quest at some point i'll try and interview some of those guys i think that would be really interesting but to wrap up this section on satanism um can we read the nine satanic statements from the satanic bible definitely let's one Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence two satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Number four, Satan represents kindness who those who deserve it, instead of love wasted on ingrates. Five, Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Six, Satan represents responsibility to the responsible, instead of concern for psychic vampires. Seven, Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those that walk on all fours, who, because of his divine spiritual and intellectual development, has become the most vicious animal of all. Eight, Satan represents all so-called sins, as they are all as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. Number nine, Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had, as he has kept it in business all these years. Indeed. On to our good friend, Chaos Magic. Back to back to the house blend. Indeed. Chaos Magic was largely developed by artist and occultist Austin Osmond Spare, who developed the methods of sigil work and some of the modern uses of gnosis to fire them off. Then there was this organization, um, initiatory secret society, uh, called the Illuminatis of Thanateros, which was organized, um, well, it was announced in 1978, not officially founded until 87. Um, if you break that down, Illuminates uh, means illuminated ones, and Thanateros is a combination of two Greek words, Eros and Thanatos, meaning sex and death, respectively, and have been described by many psychologists and philosophers to be the two prime derives of humanity. The organization was founded by Ray Sherwin and Peter J. Carroll, who emphasize practical magic over metaphysical systems. 
the formal order was, has uh, initiations and degrees, but we don't really need to go into that too much. Okay. Chaos magic is results-based magic. Chaos magic is not as much about ritual or philosophy or metaphysical systems. It's not so much it's about a- doing it right as it is about doing it. And getting shit done, Yes, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's less about the pageantry and more about like what happened? functionality, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so it seeks success in, in, in its endeavors. It uses belief as a tool. It is postmodern in the sense that it rejects the idea that absolute truth is knowable. Uh, it often utilizes symbolism, sigils to communicate desires and intentions to the universe it utilizes altered states of consciousness, which we call gnosis, and it uses those as pathways to magical working. Uh, there are three forms of gnosis. We've talked about two in the past. Uh, there's the inhibitory method, uh, achieved through methods such as meditation, sleep deprivation, hypnotic drug use, fasting, controlled muscle relaxation, etc. There's the excitatory method, which is entered through drumming, dancing, chanting, physical pain, psychedelic drug use, etc. Finally, there's the third model added by Phil Hine. This is called indifferent vacuity and is done in a state of extreme boredom, such as being stuck in traffic or sitting through a boring staff meeting or professional development meeting. I definitely have used that method many times. I think that my version of indifferent vacuity might be naps. Hmm. You get a lot done while napping? Yes. Kevin, dream work. We're coming to that next anyway. Yes. <laughs> Not in this episode. napping. Functional napping. We'll tack that on to our next episode. We will. <laughs> I just invented it. It's a new discipline. Functional napping. All right. I expect a book about it in about six months. All right. Uh, I might have to self-publish. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody. I'll get it done while I'm. Well I'll, I'll get it done while I'm napping. There you go. There you go. It's okay. only available in the astral realm. You have yep. to go get it from Kevin, but you have to astral project there. Uh, I do. I do accept Bitcoin for that, though. You accept Bitcoin? Yes. Um, astral Bitcoin. Fucking pricey, man. Not a whole um, Bitcoin. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I only accept Sonic coins. So, what was the one that Snoop Dogg tried to do? D- joints? I don't. I don't know. I, I think it was basically like a weed coin. <laughs> a weed coin. I'm not on it's top just, of my current cryptocurrency. Just uh, yeah, uh, currency based on one gram nuggets of cannabis. You know, that's that's a fairly stable market. I mean, it has been for a good long time. Demand doesn't go away. No, <laughs> no. Uh, let's see. Uh, that about pretty path much pretty magic. Good. What's that? Let's talk about path magic. Path working. Yeah. I I mean that's uh like all path, right path magic like right and left handed path magic. Oh 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 oh! I thought you wanted to talk about like path working rituals. I was gonna oh, say no, like, no, that's no. pretty that's, specific. <laughs> like, that's, that's a whole nother critter. <laughs> oh shit. Okay. Yeah. Um. So right and left hand path. Right hand and left handed paths. Right, of magic, so, which is different from path working. We are sorry. Yeah. Um, so I, we kind of sort of not really talked about this in episode two. I think we, we talked about there's a misconception. So we talked about black versus white magic, but left hand and right hand path isn't really that. No. Um, 
I actually have a very strong preference for one side as opposed to another. But for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to try really hard to be as objective as possible, uh, understanding that it is pretty much impossible to completely eliminate bias. We will do our best as best it can be done. True. So basically, in a nutshell, left hand and right hand magic have been muddied a bit in the social realm, and people have attempted to associate them with black and white magic, respectively. Though both paths can certainly use methods, sorry, both paths can certainly use their methods to do great good or unconscionable evil if we're going to attempt to boil down human thought and action into a dichotomy that I don't entirely believe in. I really don't either. Uh, One of the major goals of right-hand path magicians seems to be to reunite their soul with their personal godhead or creator god. Uh, This is represented by the 10th Sephiroth on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life diagram. Left-handed path magic tends to be organized into some form of magic grouping like the OTO, follows a set code of morality, and through their belief in a creator, god, or force, believe in some kind of judgment, either in death or in life. I'm sorry, that's all right-hand path, though. Is it? Yeah. Um, So left-hand path seeks to confront personal darkness and transmute it into something positive or useful, uh, and and sees what we might call uh, moksha as a step on the journey, but wanting to separate once more with that divine spark under their command and sort of take it with them, creating their own universe and becoming its God. The great work, so to speak. To some, this is very literal, while to others and perhaps most who view themselves as more of a... Well, I'm not going to say that most people view them as atheistic magicians, but... Maybe um, they do. Perhaps. This is kind of a metaphor for transforming into your best possible self. Okay. Some left-hand path practitioners do not believe that there is a god or universal force or essence like the Tao. Some do. But almost universally, left-hand path uh, practitioners seek some degree of unbridled control over their own universe. Satanism is an example of left-hand path magic. Uh, most of the time, chaos magic is as well. Left-hand path magic also involves uh, developing of the magician's own personal code of ethics, which I talked about a little bit earlier, um, and we're probably going to break down later on in another episode. Magicians will develop this code, sometimes break it apart later on, changing it, remolding it, breaking various taboos and use elements like uh, like Aleister Crowley, like using sex and drugs and different things like that um, within the confines of their rituals. Right. It really is worth pointing out, though, that these are, again, examples of social constructs and are not real paths of magic per se. Uh, they are examples of people trying to classify, maybe over-classify their world. Magic is magic. Harm none, do what thou will. True that. Harm none, do what thou will. I want to talk a bit about work cited, because a few people asked us to post our bibliographical information in written form. We will begin doing that on our Facebook community page. So, fellow travelers, if you are interested in a written bibliography, 
please check it out there. Yeah, that page is specifically called Fellow Travelers on on Facebook. It's an offshoot of our uh, Fool's Guide to the Occult. For the people actually Facebook. doing it. Yeah, some people are talking there. The community's not super big yet, um, so not a whole lot of dialogue. I'd love it if people would start like having some discussion there. I tried to prompt um, discussion a little while ago. I had forgot to make the page private. It is now private. Only members can see what happens there. Sorry to uh, that one person who that was an issue for. I might deepest, sincerest apologies. But yeah, and also I'm going to post these um, on instagram as well so you'll be able to find them for like each upcoming episode like tomorrow when i go to to post this uh episode live though we're excited will show up uh on on insta uh at fool's guide right so we're excited all right in no particular order the anthropology of religion magic and witchcraft by rebecca and philip stein the secret teachings of all ages by manly p hall Ancient Egyptian Divination and Magic by Eleanor L. Harris. Shamanism, The Spirit World of Korea by Chaishin Yu and Argiso. The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. The Occult Experience, 1984. I don't know who the director was of that, but yes. Uh, the Road to Eleusis by Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck. Lieber Null and Psychonaut, both by Peter J. Carroll. Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine. Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft by, you guessed it, Raymond Buckland. And the Satanic Bible by Anton Zandor LeVay. Our purpose is done now. Uh, our circle is broken. We, we now go back to the world, enriched in knowledge, alight with laughter, a little. This was a longer one, so hopefully alight with a little laughter. Uh, at least a little bit more than when we started. So mote it be. So mote it be. So mote it be. Thrice bound and done. I'm going to go have some mustard chicken. Until next time, listeners. Fools out. <laughs>